Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in instance of wanting to run towards it. So welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is the host of the Netflix series, Connected. We also know him from Radiolab, uh, and he is one of the bright young minds that is doing incredible work, really capturing so much of the zeitgeist of our culture. Uh, so a hearty welcome to Latif Nasser. Welcome. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, this is great. So Thanks, I, I want to start um, and go back to Ontario. You grew up in a small town and you end up doing things that I'm going to guess, and I'm not going to try to pronounce Mississauga. I think I'll blow it. Yeah, you pretty, you pretty much got it. Mississauga. Okay, Mississauga. Uh, but I'm going to guess there aren't a lot of Mississauga natives who have traveled down the road of curiosity that you have. Were you always just naturally curious? I think I was, I was curious. I wasn't, a, I wasn't always a great student, uh, but I was curious. I was always curious. And I think that uh, there were a lot of... Um, like the, there were, I, I feel like I, I was very active with my mosque growing up. I was very active. I, I, I did a lot of kind of extracurricular things, but in terms of school, like I wasn't the best student, uh, in, especially the sciences. I, I really wasn't the best student. Um, I remember it feeling like, uh, like I, I remember the experience of high school science, especially at my sort of public high school that was down the street from my house, which is a good school. But the, the feeling of being in science class, science class there was like, it felt like you were sitting at your desk and someone hands you this textbook and it's just a, a giant compendium of answers to questions you didn't even ask or, or, or know, you know, like, it's like, like, like I remember thinking like, this is the worst way to give me this information. Like, cause I just don't care like these are all just formulae and numbers and letters and like I, I i don't really care um and i think to me it took me a while uh i, I went away uh, to finish grad uh, high school then i went to undergrad i went to grad school kind of over that whole process i, I sort of started to learn oh wait a second there's another way in here instead of starting with the answers you start with the questions and that's that unlocks everything once you realize the questions are um, are actually interesting and are dynamic like we're still trying to answer so many of these fundamental questions um that all of a sudden that it changes everything like instead of this being this dry dusty thing that's solved and done it's like oh we're just trying to figure this out and for some reason everything always works this way um and 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 let's figure out why uh and 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 like when you when you it's just a tilting of the framing but for me that that unlocked everything turns out that the 3.5 million year old bone that Natalia had dug out of the high Arctic belonged to a camel. I'm thinking, what? That's amazing, right? If it's true. 
the, the size of the bone that they found uh, w was such that it, it meant that this camel was 30% larger than modern-day camels. So uh, this camel would have been about nine feet tall, weighed around a ton. Natalia had found a giant Arctic camel. In your studies, I mean, you must have done something right academically because you were the class day orator for your class at Dartmouth. They don't give that to just anybody. No, no, they, they give that to the person with the biggest mouth, I think. Uh, but uh, um, yeah, I, I, I got that. I think I was, I was lucky um, in, well, well, what happened was I went away for high school. For my last two years of high school, I went to uh, this uh, incredible, incredible uh, high school um, in British Columbia called Pearson College. And it's one of a network of these, they're called the United World Colleges. And they uh, they basically, like it was a tiny school, about 200 people from about 200 students all on full scholarship from about a hundred different countries. Um, and so it was this, it was this sort of, just incredible experience where, whereas I'd been surrounded by kind of that diversity before, I, I'd never, it never kind of clicked to me. I was like, wow, who, who are these people? I want to know their stories. And basically by the time then I, because I spent two years sort of away from home, f having these sort of uh, identity crises, like who am I? What am I doing? What is, what does any of this all mean? By the time I got to college, the, the, by the time I went to Dartmouth, um, in a way, a lot of other students were sort of kind of freshly having those, uh, those identity crises and trying to figure out what what the world was about and I, I had a little head start on them um and so by the time i got there i really was like maybe slightly more formed a person um uh and i i kind of like i was able to sort of jump on stuff that excited me and that interested me um including among other things, like it was really a wide grab bag of stuff. Like I was really into theater. I was really into um, like Middle Eastern studies. I was really into, I, I just had a whole kind of grab bag of stuff I was into. And um, yeah, and, and, and I got involved in a lot of extracurriculars and then, um, and I managed to, yeah, I don't know why they elected me the class A orator. I think it's because I was a, I was a, I was a kind of an outspoken person and I talked a lot uh, and uh yeah, I guess some people at least uh, thought that was a, uh, a a good thing, and they voted me to be orator. And you then end up doing additional work at Harvard. Yeah, that's right. So that was kind of funny. That was the the, the way I got into grad school. That's where I, uh, Harvard is where I went to grad school. And I just, I actually, I I hadn't wanted to go to Harvard. I I, I wanted to study playwriting. And so I applied to all these playwriting programs and I didn't get into any of them. And I was kind of like, what am I going to do? I have no idea. Uh, I had a professor who I had been a research assistant for. That was kind of one of my side jobs uh, as an undergrad. And um, he was like, why don't you just do the thing that I did? Uh, why don't you go to this grad school program? And he said, he said to me, because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, he's like, here's the trick. Uh, if you apply for a master's degree, um, that's, you know, a one or two year program, but you have to pay. But if you apply for a PhD, they pay you and you can drop out two years in and they'll just give you the master's for free. So I was like, oh, great. That's what I'm going to do. Perfect. Um, so I went and then I, because I'm me, I got super interested in it all. And then I actually stayed and finished the whole PhD. Fantastic. So I love what you're doing to make a subject that to many of us, science, accessible. And 
science has been in the news the last, you know, I don't know how long this has been going on, four, five, six months, and has been under fire, both as someone who's a Canadian and as someone who knows science. What's your take on what's been going on and how science, in a sense, has almost been demonized? in the United States. What do you have to lose? Supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light, and I think you said that hasn't been checked, but you're going to test it. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, you can, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. I think there's so many different ways to answer that. I think that part of it is this challenge of education of how we all collectively think about science uh, and and how we are taught about science like that that feeling right that you're sitting in your high school classroom and you get this textbook uh, and it's like here are it, it almost feels like here are the rules here are the figured out rules right um, and to me like so much of uh, this anti-science feeling to me, uh, like the anti-vaxxer, the anti-climate change, the anti, I mean, there's a lot of different parts to it, but to me, a really, one of the loudest notes is this like, don't tell me what to do. Don't, you don't know, you don't know better than I do. Like, you know, screw you, uh, like, like authority, you know, it's that, it's that kind of anti-authority thing. Um, and to me, it's the, it, it again comes down to that answers versus questions thing. Because to me, I, I think if we, if we, kind of frame it differently um, if we frame it in a way as to say, look, like these people, these scientists, they're humans. They're just like us, but they're doing their best. They're trying to figure this out. Look at how rigorously they're trying to figure this out, trying to control for every possible thing to try to isolate this one thing to try to figure out whether these tiny droplets that I, when I'm talking, how far they're going to go from my mouth, like very simple things that actually turn out to be right, quite high stakes. I mean, if you, if you present it like, oh, we're on this, you know, we're on this hunt to solve this mystery of how far a droplet can go out of our mouth. And, and, and it's such a, like, it's something so obvious in front of us and yet it's so mysterious and interesting. And let's try to all solve it together. And here's, here's the best we can reckon as opposed to stay six feet away from everybody at all times, you know, like, like it, to me, there's a, there's a kind of like, you have to let people in, but in order to let them in, you have to hook them at the beginning. And I, to me, a good question is always a great hook. Um, and, and to me, it's like, I get, I get people who don't like science, who don't understand science. I feel like I'm in a way I'm who don't get science. I'm one of them. It takes me a lot to kind of like chew it up and parse it out and to understand it in kind of bite-sized chunks. Um, but, but to me, the, the way to do that, the, the best way to do that is to say, listen, we're all dumb. We're all dumb. And there are these questions that are really important and we need to figure out the answers to. And here are the our, our, our best people who are working the hardest to try to figure out these answers. And they may be, it's true, they may be wrong or they may be, they may go down a, a dead end. They may go down a, you know, um, uh, uh, and, and have to make a U-turn with their logic. But like, that's just how science works. And, 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 and we gotta, we gotta listen to them because we're all in it together and all our choices affect each other. Was there another way that this could have been handled 
you look at the U.S. and, you know, Canada's done much better. You know, I have a friend who uh, shared a story of uh, how they handled it in Vietnam. And that's a major place, you know, 96 million people. They locked down in January, no deaths. Yeah. You know, here they're saying now as high potentially as 300,000. Who yeah. knows? Yeah. What's, what's your take? You do just shake your head. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, really hard not to be dispirited, especially given that there's been so much, like there was so much brain power, uh, technological expertise, um, like, like even like infrastructure and government, like agencies and stuff that, that were primed to handle a threat just like this one. And then, uh, there are uh, a number of different reasons, including like political, uh, uh, you know, ineptitude in a way, uh, that like we lost very valuable time. And what you hear from epidemiologists and, and folks at the CDC and th things like that, like time is the thing, actually. It's, it's as much as anything else, time is really in, in crises like these, time is the, the most valuable thing. And, and that, early, that early time that we lost was really, really, uh, you know, it, it determined much, much of what's following and what's, what's happening now. Not to say that there weren't, you know, many more problems that compounded it. That said, it's like, it's kind of, it feels weird to kind of, um, uh, like Monday morning quarterback, a thing that's still, we're still in the middle of, you know? Um, and if it, it, it is, it is like galling to see other countries, including my families in Canada, like to, to hear, you know, everything's opening back up. My, my, my nieces and nephews are going to school. My, you know, uh, uh, that, that to, to see that compared to where we are now, it's like, it's just, it is galling. Um, but it's the kind of thing where you're like, we, we need to, you know, we're at the spot where we're at. We need to just figure out a way through this and, and then we can kind of look back on it all and, and, and make it right. But like at this moment, it, it feels like, you know, this is, it's, it's a deadly crisis and then compounded by, by an economically deadly crisis and a, and a, and a racial justice crisis. Um, it, it feels like, like these, these stacked, uh, crises, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really hard to kind of, um, I don't know, like, like, like point fingers, lay blame and stuff when, when we're in the middle of it. Cause you're like, I don't even, I don't even care about blame right now. I don't even care. Let's just, let's just solve this problem. Like, let's just, let's just get a, you know, a tourniquet on the wound, uh, you know, before, before anything else and not to be a, a sort of harbinger of doom or anything, but it does seem like, um, from the sort of closest historical analog we have, which is 1918, um, that, the, that the fall was, a was, was much worse. Uh, that, that, that we should be bracing ourselves, circling whatever wagons we have left because, because we're, you know, um, it, it could be really bad. It's, it's, it's a little depressing, it's a little depressing, but it, but also I think to me it, it's, it's depressing, but it's also really important, uh, for several reasons. One is it, it's because like, this is, this is the kind of crisis that science is sort of, that's the point of it, right? Public health is a very, very robust. And, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an old and strong field that has made a lot of mistakes in the past, but, but, but also that has a lot to offer, um, and that we, we shouldn't sort of turn our back on. Um, but the, the, the other thing, um, is that, 
I think it I think it does touch on so, sort of something that's at the essence of, of this show that I tried to make, um, which is that we are I mean, it's so it feels almost uh, 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 so obvious as to be uh, absurd uh, to say we are connected. Right. Like the, the way that this is happening, um, the way that we are, the reason that we're all disconnecting, shutting ourselves up in our in our homes and our our countries is is because this this pandemic is connecting us. But but what to me the the thing that it is hard to remember at this moment in history is that the things that connect us aren't just the deadly and scary things the things that connect us are also the helpful things also the beautiful things also the poetic things also the things that um you know it's it, that are worth living for you know and and to me i think it's like uh, my my show in a way hopefully is a is a um, besides being a, a sort of a fun little educational adventure, it's it's that it's a reminder that, um, yeah, that you know our connections can 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 really turn against us, but they also they're they're, um, yeah, they're the re- they're they're a reason to get up in the morning because there's so much beauty all around us and there's so much to live for uh, on this planet. Yeah, no, absolutely, and 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 in that notion about how we're all connected you create this incredible series on Netflix, Connected. And I love the description of the show where, you know, when I think of a science journalist, you are not the image that pops into my head. Where'd the Connected idea come from? Because I think you're so far ahead of your time in so many ways. Latif, welcome in Baudelaire. Wow, it kind of just looks like everything else. My name is Latif Nasser. I'm a science reporter. Oh, wow. And this is a show about the astonishing connections all around us. Connections between you and me and our world that'll make you see that world in a whole new way. Very important question. Does the queen's poop come through here? It has a flag on it, so we salute as she comes. <laughs> okay. How is the cloud above your head connected to the cloud that stores your data? How can an obscure mathematical law help make sense of your favorite song? Benford's Law. Benford's Law. Could you Benford Beyonce? If anything does work, then it probably is Beyonce. How does the dust of the Sahara Desert nourish the Amazon rainforest? There's an elevator, right? I was really excited. We think we understand a lot, but there are so many questions still open. That is crazy. A single Google search takes the same amount of energy as a standard LED light bulb on for three minutes. So, okay, so how did this show come about? The show came about because, so I've been a science journalist for a while. Um, it's it, it it's a it's a job I love. It's, it's a... Uh, um, for me, it's it's something I, I I legitimately get up in the morning and I'm I'm excited about. Um, one day, kind of out of the blue, I got an email from a production company, Zero Point Zero Productions. They're the, they're the people behind, um, among other things, um, all the Anthony Bourdain shows, and uh, they kind of told me that they wanted to do to the hosted science show what what they had already kind of done to the food show. So if you remember, like food shows used to be like like a, a man or a woman in a kitchen, and that was kind of it, you know? Eight minutes, or spaghetti anyway, eight minutes, because that's another point where people go wrong, is they cook it far too long, on lots of packets it says 15, even up to 20 minutes I've seen it. And it really isn't very nice if it's overcooked and soggy. He sort of exploded that 
um, going all over the world. It's actually, it's not just about food. It's also about culture and people and storytelling and all these other things. See, this is the way I wanted the show to look. Black and white, reminiscent of those great 50s French films like Bob Le Flambeur. You know, sort of unflappable, sort of sad, but fatalistic French hero. You know, every bad turn in life, just another throw of the dice, a shrug, and a say no now. And they were saying, what if we could do that for the science show? What if we could get find a sort of a science host uh, who would go all over, kind of look over scientists' shoulders in, in real space, in real time, kind of watching them do the amazing things that they're doing? Um, and so that was kind of the idea that they approached me with, which I loved because I'm such a like I, I, you know, I grew up watching Bill Nye and um, there's this uh, um, old British show Connections. There, there are a whole bunch of shows that I just I like love that. That's catnip for me. Um, and uh, so I, I had kind of the idea kind of coming back, which is like, OK, so if we are going out to these far flung places, I, I think part of the fun would be how do we go to this, you know, middle of nowhere to see this totally random scientist doing this completely seemingly random thing and find a way to connect it back to the viewer. So it's like, we're going far away, but it's actually what you realize is it's not far away at all. It's right here. It's in the, it's in the, it's in the breath you just took, or it's in the, you know, the selfie you just posted or whatever it is. Um, and so that's the kind of the, the idea of the series. It's like, let's go out to far-flung places, see amazing things that scientists are doing. And then also, what are the ways we can kind of leapfrog our way back all the way to, you know, you watching, watching on your couch, you know? And it sounds like it starts with what you were talking about earlier, which is asking questions. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the fun, like, cause that's the, that's the way that for me, at least that I, like, that's the way the curiosity works. You start with a question, sometimes even a dumb question. Um, like for instance, for the clouds episode, um, I had a question, which I, I, I legitimately didn't know the answer to, which is like, is, is the, we, people talk about the cloud a lot. Is the cloud related to the clouds, uh, like the clouds above our head. And so it's a kind of a, a, a silly question or a simple question and it's like okay let's just go on this kind of global odyssey to figure out this very simple question um and and sort of chase the answers in different places and see what kind of interesting stuff we come up with you know when you graduated from school i'm gonna guess that at no point did you think you were going to be like a regular job nine to five kind of guy <laughs> That's, that's, that's probably fair to say. I, I, I definitely didn't know what I want to do. I still don't really know what I want to do. Um, the, uh, but, but I do think I, I could never, never have imagined. I didn't know what a podcast was when I graduated uh, high school and university. Um, I didn't think, like you said, I, I don't look like a science journalist uh, uh, type, or I don't look like a TV host for sure. Um, and I think I, I never would have imagined that this could have ever been possible. Um, this is a, uh, yeah, this is, I, I feel kind of like, um, like Cinderella in that I got to be able to do this, like that, that this production company, Netflix, they picked me to be able to uh, be the one to kind of um, tell this uh, bag of weirdo stories. But I think for your generation, and I'm probably about 25 years ahead of you on the clock, 
But even for my generation, I'm the last year of the baby boomers. I was born mm-hmm. in 64. But I think you're making stuff that's inaccessible, incredibly accessible and exciting. Yeah, well, I, I hope I hope so. I mean, to me, I think my my um, I, I always joke that my my kind of only superpower as a uh, journalist is my enthusiasm. Like I get real excited about a lot of things, a lot of things that a lot of other people don't get excited about. And in fact, what I try to do is I try to find stuff that there's no way that anybody could get excited about and then find a, a kind of a way in, try to find a, a way to get excited about and make it meaningful. And that's kind of like a game that I play um, in my life. And, and in a way, I think that that sort of bears out in this, uh, in this series. And, and, and I hope that that's the, that's the fun. Like, I, I hope that each of these episodes, each of these stories are sort of a little gateway drug for people to go out and, and learn some new things and like kind of, you know, tread some new ground, ask some new questions that nobody else has ever asked before. Cause it's, cause it's actually not that hard to ask questions that nobody's ever asked before. They're all around us. Well, I think your notion of the cloud and the clouds, right? I think that's yeah. like an incredibly obvious one. Yeah. I guess it's tough when, you know, you're, you're sort of a consummate storyteller to choose a favorite or favorites. But looking back on the body of work at Radiolab, let's start there. Sure. Is there any story that you say, man, I, 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 that was really something? Um, oh, I've, I, I, I mean, they're all right. They're all sort of children in a way, but, uh, one of the stories that I, that I love best, um, and it's not even a science story, actually. Uh, it's the story of, and I don't know if you're a big hockey fan or not. Um, it's the story of, uh, this hockey player, professional hockey player, John Scott. Fan voting has long been a part of the game. As a kid, there was nothing else better than grabbing a little punch card at a game and knocking out the little circles and and trying to grab like 30 of them to make sure that, you know, Kirk Muller gets a spot in the All-Star game or whatever. Uh, The NHL, they have this thing where you could, I don't know if they still have it, where you could vote in uh, your favorite players to go to the All-Star game. And these kind of online, they're actually podcasters. They had this sort of uh, like mischievous idea um, mischievous is maybe a generous way to put it. Uh, mischievous idea. What if we voted in the worst guy in the league into the all-star game? What would happen? Like a kind of a joke, like, uh, like just to see what would happen. And at that point they started thinking, what if we use the little voting power that we do have to mess with the all-star game? We need some, we need someone in there who normally would not be in this game. Like as a joke, we should vote somebody in who just does not belong. Hmm. And Greg's like, I like that thought. Okay. But who? Who would fit the bill there? And as Greg was thinking about it, he thought, you know what would be funny? You know what would really mess with the NHL? Is if we vote in a player. A player who couldn't really keep up. Couldn't really shoot. Couldn't really handle the puck. The slow guy with the bad hands. Couldn't do anything. Let's, let's, let's really, you know, drop a stink bomb in the room. And then... It hit him. The perfect guy. A Goliath of the league. John Scott. Oh my God, John Scott All-Star. John Scott! So John Scott. Scott is 6'8 and 270. 
Um, and so they voted in this guy, John Scott. John Scott had been in the league for you know uh, many years, an older player, bigger guy. Uh, he was more of an enforcer type. And he, I think over his whole career, he had something like five goals. Anyway, they, they vote in this guy and, and it becomes this mass movement. He gets more votes than everybody else. So many votes, in fact, that the NHL, they're so embarrassed by it. They take off the number of votes on the, on the, on the website where you vote because it was just uh, kind of went haywire. Um, this guy, I'll cut the story short. It's actually like, it feels like a Disney movie, actually. Um, he, goes, he goes ultimately to the All-Star game. He plays the best game he's ever played in his whole life. He scores two goals. This guy who had scored five goals his whole career against all the top players of uh, the top hockey players, probably in the world. Um, he scores two goals. He's voted MVP, wins a million dollars, all these other things. The 2016 Honda NHL All-Star MVP scored two goals in the tournament and wins as a right-in candidate, John um, and, and also, uh, his, uh, he and his wife, they, uh, give birth to twins, I think like the very next day or something. Um, uh, anyway, it's a great story, but really to me, what was fun about that story, uh, and sorry, it took me a little while to tell it, but, um, what was fun about that story was it was a 2016 story about kind of voting on haywire, kind of the Bodie McBoatface phenomenon, right? Um, and to me, it was actually a really interesting way to kind of refract and see the effects of the uh, of the 2016 presidential election um, and to kind of look like what 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 is this moment that we're living in where people think, OK, I'm going to find the least likely person. Uh, I'm going to find the person who, you know, is just going to is just going to like, I think they wanted a, a goon, like they wanted a, a, a um, it, it was a kind of a, a clowny kind of move. Um, and, 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 and in a way it was a story, it was about sort of on the face of it, it was about professional hockey, but it actually was about, about politics. It was about sort of internet politics. And it was about um, kind of this, this very specific moment of 2016. Can you tell us a little bit about the series that you did on Detainee 244 at Guantanamo sure. Bay? Cause that's just absolutely fascinating. Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah, so it, it, this was uh, about about three years ago, but around the same time, 2016, I was uh, on Twitter and I saw someone tweet about me and I was like, I, what is this tweet? I don't even understand it. And it was at, it was uh, a tweet to the president of the United States. So someone was tweeting to the president about me. And I was like, I do not understand this. Um I kind of dug a little deeper and what I found was that there was a guy with my same name who happened to be, uh, as you said, detainee 244 at Guantanamo Bay. This is a story about two nerdy Muslim kids from the suburbs named Latif Nasser. I'm one of them. And the other is detainee number 244 at Guantanamo Bay. I've spent three years obsessed with this guy retracing his story from his home in Casablanca to the most notorious prison in the world. I'm trying to find the truth in a place outside the bounds of law. It's tough to know who to trust, whether they're a CIA agent or a former detainee. This is the hardest story I've ever reported. Was he a member of the Taliban? Classified. Was he tortured? Yes. This started as a story about a name, but it became so much more. 
The public needs to know about it because this is a story about the most fundamental American values. Life, liberty, the rule of law. Um, this guy, I, I kind of, I, I just immediately had to know everything about him. Uh, as I dug and dug, I, I found these like leaked documents where it claimed that he was Al Qaeda's top explosives expert, uh, top aide to Osama bin Laden, like really bad guy. Um, and then I managed to connect with his lawyer who said, no, 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 this guy is, was never in Al Qaeda, uh, didn't really know uh, Osama bin Laden, was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, got scooped up and has been at Guantanamo now for now, if you're counting now for uh, uh, almost, uh, yeah, for 18, 2002, 18 years without a trial, without charges even. Um, and 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 actually, to make it even crazier, in 2016, he had been uh, brought in front of a, um, a, a U.S. government panel um, representing all these different agencies uh, and and career civil servants, not um, kind of political appointees, unanimously decided that this guy ought to go back home, um, that he should be free to go. And so he, so I found this story of this guy who had my name locked up at Guantanamo, either was a kind of a boogeyman, really, really the worst of the worst, uh, or he just had the worst of the worst luck and, and happened to be, you know, in this place without any kind of trial. Um, and, and so I, I basically spent three years with a team of, uh, uh, producers trying to figure out like who is this guy what is he doing there um did he do what they said he did and kind of what do i what do i make of it all and in a way it was like we sort of joked that it was it was the only trial this guy ever got um and it was in you know literally right here in my in my podcast studio that we did it so you're probably early 30s i'm gonna guess i'm 35 yeah yeah accomplished an incredible amount What's ahead? What's on your plate? Do we want to keep connected going? I, what, what, I, are we, I, what are we doing? I, I want to. I, I can't say that it's, I think basically it's dependent on um, viewers. Netflix is, as you uh, I'm sure know, a data company. And so they, it like the number of views really makes a difference. And a few months after the release, they sort of uh, tally up how many people watched and that's how they decide whether to keep a show going or not. So hopefully enough people will watch that I'll get to make more because I had so much fun making it. Um, I'm still at Radiolab. There's some really exciting stuff in store there uh, that I am. Um, I'm, I'm like, I'm literally not allowed to talk about. Otherwise I would, I would blurt it out right now. Um, there's just such an exciting team of people there. We have some really exciting projects coming up. Um, I have I have other stuff that I'm just I'm kind of constantly I have so many ideas for so many dumb things that I want to do. Uh, so many projects. Uh, uh, I, by dumb, I mean uh, probably a lot of the ideas are dumb, but I'm I'm probably going to try them all out anyway. Um, right now I'm on paternity leave, so it's really. Uh, uh, I, I'm just kind of doing it a day at a time until this baby uh, learns night from day, basically. But um, but other than that, yeah, I, I got some stuff in store that I'm really excited about, and um, hopefully, if enough people watch, I, I have I have so many ideas that I wanted uh, take this uh, series to whole new whole new places. Uh, I think I like I I really feel like we were just getting started. That was my first go around, and I think I I have. Um, even even weirder, even more surprising ideas in store. Well, fantastic. And no doubt it'll start with asking questions. 
And I love what you're doing to make the inaccessible accessible. And, uh, and your enthusiasm is infectious. Thank um, you. And I, lo- I love talking with you. I hope this wasn't too painful for you. Are you kidding me? No way. This is a nice, uh, nice reprieve. And I, 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 I'm very flattered to be asked on your podcast. So thank you for having me. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.